the Word of God to John chapter 11. We have now transitioned into a different book today as we do our best to go chronologically through this walk the Lord had on this earth. John chapter 11. It's a a popular passage in, in one sense that many of us have heard the story and uh, many of us know a lot of details. You might actually even be able to retell a lot of it. Today is not going to be a graphic retelling of the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. But today I would like to draw your attention to some thoughts that I, I believe the Lord would have for us with this question at the center of each of them. Does my life bring glory to God? Does your life bring glory to God, And I would like you to keep that question in your mind as we study this passage. If you want to take notes on the inside of your bulletin is a, a basic outline, some space to take notes between there. We invite you to join us with that. John chapter 11. Let's just start by reading uh, five verses and then we will walk through the passage together. It's, it's a large passage, so we are not going to be able to go detail verse by verse like we normally do, but I want you to see a few things, and then um, probably not this coming Sunday because it's Christmas Eve morning, but the following Sunday we may continue and draw some more out of this passage. We'll just leave that up to the Lord. But as far as today, John chapter 11, starting in verse number 1, the Bible says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Would you just ask the Lord along with me to help us this morning and to teach us his word? Lord, This is your time, and we endeavor to make this next 30, 40 minutes all about you. Lord, would you help us with that? There are going to be so many distractions that come into our minds, so many plans we have for this day and the coming season, so many issues that may still be tugging at us, maybe even temptations, maybe even doubts and questions that have brought us here, Lord. We ask that you would answer those with your word. Lord, we need to hear from you. In your name I ask, amen. Well, the story of Lazarus, if we could give kind of a a brief summary of the story, just to bring it to your mind, Jesus has now left the vicinity of the city of Jerusalem. Um, And the reason he left was to avoid the hostile leaders that were there. It was getting the persecution, the animosity against, against Jesus from the what the Bible calls the Jews, not necessarily talking about the the nation as a whole, but those who were kind of representing the nation, the leaders, the elite, if you would, of that false religion and the way it had grown. Never intended to be false, but it had become that way. Jesus has avoided that area. Why did he avoid that area? Because he was afraid? No, because it wasn't time yet. He would come back to Jerusalem, but it would be on his time schedule, not on man's time schedule. So Jesus is, we believe, up in Bethabara, about two days' journey from Bethany. Bethany is where this takes place that we're going to get ready to read about today. 
Uh, Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. It was basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And it was where uh, Mary and Martha lived and their brother Lazarus. While Jesus is up in Bethabara, he receives word that a good friend, Lazarus, it says, a certain man, is sick. In fact, by the time he received this message, he didn't have text messaging, all right, instantaneous information all over the world. Um, they had to send that message. So more than likely, by the time he received the message, the Lazarus that we know of in the story was already dead. But, he, but they didn't know that. He knew that. But they didn't know that. They send word. He receives word that a good friend Lazarus is sick. He purposely waits two days before going and answering this call, returning to Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. When Jesus arrives, he arrived four days after Lazarus had been dead and buried. And matter of fact, at this point, and we won't read this today, but at this point, he was stinking. They, they did not embalm like the Egyptians did. Um, that was not part of their culture, so they would wrap spices in the grave clothes to try to combat the smell that would immediately begin because there was no embalming. Immediate decomposition happened. Four days later, there was, there was a lot to smell. Can we just put it that way? In front of Lazarus' mourning sisters, who, by the way, Jesus was weeping with as well, and an assembled crowd there in Bethany, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead four days later. An incredible miracle. You say, well, aren't all miracles incredible? Yeah, they are. But this one was especially <laughs> incredible. He's already raised two people from, from the dead, but they were raised almost, um, not instantaneously, but very short period after they had passed. This, he waited intentionally until he was four days. You say, well, how do you know he waited intentionally? Because he's God. That's why. He knew exactly when he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Matter of fact, he clues his disciples in the verse we just read that this sickness is not unto death. This sickness is for the glory of God. Well, I don't know about you, but when I hear stuff like that, I, I don't know, I want to know, in my humanity, that's probably not something I would say. So if God says something that I probably wouldn't say, I, I tend to want to know why that is. Because then I have a decision to make. Do I think like God? Or do I keep my own thinking? Because I know when my thinking doesn't match up with God's thinking, there's an issue. And it's not with God. But that's just me. In John chapter 11, we are going to take what I would do in this, and I'm going to invite you on that journey with me. Okay, Jesus uh, has already done seven really incredible miracles. I'm sorry, six incredible miracles, all in the book of John, because if you know anything about John, you theologues out there, John is all the time trying to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was God. The other disciples may have known it, but that is like John's emphasis, the entire book, the entire narrative. He's trying to prove the deity of Christ. So he records these incredible miracles. The first one that we even know of, Jesus turning water into wine in John 2. The healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. The restoring of the impotent man in John chapter 5. The multiplying of the five loaves and the two fishes in John 6. The walking on the water we all know and love in John chapter 6. In the curing of the man born blind. By the way, when, when they talk about um, the fact that they don't want to go down to Bethany, this is why. Because after the, the healing of the man born blind, there was an uproar and they barely escaped with their life. 
In response to this seventh, and I think we could all agree, the greatest miracle Jesus, Jesus performed, the resurrection of Lazarus after four days, religious leaders now tried to coordinate their effort to send Jesus to the cross. They didn't even know what they were doing as far as that, but God did. God knew exactly. According to Jesus, the purpose in his friend Lazarus' sickness and eventual death was so God could be glorified. So God could be glorified. Well, I don't know, when I see words that, that get used a lot in church, again, I tend to kind of want to know what they mean. Like, what are we meaning? How many in here know that certain things we say, phrases, words that we use in church, we can use them sometimes without even realizing even what we're talking about? Right? I mean, it just becomes part of our church lingo, right? And sometimes we use it during the week, but sometimes it's like a language we only use at church, right? Like, amen. Like, how many people actually know what amen even means? It means so be it, all right? But did we know that? Now, I know it because I've been told many, many times, all right? But it's so easy to lose the meaning of these phrases that are in the Bible that actually have meaning because every word of God is pure. It all has meaning. Here, the word glory, the word glorified, we see it twice. We're in verse number 4 of chapter 11. We see it twice. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Well, that sounds like a really nice phrase to me. Yeah, glory to God. Give God the glory. It's all about his glory. What, is, what in the world does that mean? When we put that down to rubber meets the road, walking in 2023 Thomasville, Georgia, what does that mean? How do we apply words that just kind of remain mystically religious in our heads? How do we really make those a reality in our lives? Well, to me, we have to know what they mean, number one. So we're going to see it lived out here in this passage. But what does it mean exactly? Well, we can take the dictionary and we can open it up. There's about three million Bible dictionaries you can look at. Some are better than others, obviously. And they're going to give us a definition. And, and here, here's what it would be. The word glory, it's a noun, the Greek word doxa. Okay, doxology, you've heard of that before. Doxa has a varied flavor. And here's, it depends really on the context. So it has various meanings, all centered around the same thing. It means splendor, brightness, amazing might, praise, honor, greatness, glorious being, heaven. It can even be pride when it's applied in the sinful side, wrapped in the in a person of a human being. That's glory. The word glorified, that was a noun. The word glorified is a verb, doxazomai. Uh, see, the, the root there is the same. It means to praise, to honor, to give high status, to attribute to a high rank, to be wonderful, to be of exceptional value, to be glorified. So where do we get these definitions? Where do they get these definitions? I mean, we all know dictionaries were written by men. So, I mean, you could change the definition and make it whatever you wanted it, right? As long as it, it was close enough. Many men have done that. Well, one of the great things that I've learned, and I, th I think you need to employ this as any serious student of the Bible, when, when God gives a word, you want to pay attention to all of the places that he uses that same word. And that gives you an accurate flavor of the definition of the word. By the way, herein comes the danger on defining a word that you and I don't understand, and it's only used one time in the Scripture. Because as a human being, I don't really know what God meant by that. I get an idea, so I need to be careful on creating some kind of exact doctrine when a word is only used once or twice. 
I don't have a whole lot to compare it to. This is not one of those. This word is used throughout the Bible. The New Testament is permeated with this word doxa, doxazomai. So let's look at a few of these uh, definitions here so you and I can get a little bit of flavor, all right? The first one we see in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. This is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth the second time, not the first time like we're celebrating today, the second time, and he says, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Well, this is that splendor, that beauty that he's talking about. It's glory. We see in Acts chapter 22 is uh, Paul is uh, testifying. He's, he's Saul at this time, or he's Paul testifying about when he was Saul, retelling how he was confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus. Some of you remember the story in Acts chapter uh, 9, I believe it is. And I said, Lord, what shall I do? Or sorry, I got that backwards. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee, Paul, to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, the glory of that light, the brightness, the shining radiance, this is all part of God's glory that we would say. This is how we, this is how we get these definitions. We look in, uh, if we continue on Luke chapter 17, the context here is Jesus is responding to the one leper out of the ten that came back and was thankful. Remember this Sunday school story? It really happened. He returned to thank Jesus, and this is what Jesus said. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. To give glory. Well, what was it in that sense? The words. Words of praise. Words of honor. We continue. It's the same word. Same exact word. We continue in Matthew chapter 4. The temptations of Jesus here by Satan, that when he took Satan in this temptation and offered him the kingdoms of the world, what did he say? Jesus said unto him in verse 7, it's written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. In this, in this time, it's the greatness or the grandeur of something. We've got one more are falling short in the sight of God because of our sin, reveals the glory here. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, this one, I would say, pretty likely is kind of all of them combined. Who God is, who God appears to be, his, his relevance and his influence in our lives, his brightness, his greatness, his praiseworthiness, because of our sin, we've come short of his glory. So back in chapter 11, verse number 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, the doxa of God, that the Son of God might be doxazomai, thereby, might be glorified thereby. What is Jesus telling his men? What is Jesus telling his us? There is a much greater purpose at play here then this little circumstance like, he's going to die. There's a much greater purpose. We're not here just to breathe, just to play, just to work, just to suffer. There's so much more to our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. How can Paul say in 1 Corinthians that everything we do should be for God's glory? If you go to the wilds every year, we, we, uh, we say this verse at least before lunchtime. I haven't sat with the kids on every meal, 
but I know at least before lunchtime, they, they have to say this verse. So how can Paul say that everything we do should be God's glory? Well, let's read it. It says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, giving none offense, neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. How can Paul tell this Corinthian church that everything they do needs to be rooted in one purpose and one goal, to bring glory to God? How can he do that? Because this life is not about us. It's not about us. As a matter of fact, if you walk down that road, and some of you have, if you walk down that road and make this life about you, you will not be successful. It's not possible. God did not create you that way. Oh, you can drum up all sorts of worldly success and things, and you'll crash at the end. You can, you can with money and pleasure and, and ways of escape, you can numb those feelings that this is not right, something is not fitting. But until we get to the point in our lives where we are yearning to glorify God in everything we do, we'll never truly feel like we're there. We'll never truly feel like, like we are walking with God. That's not a pride thing. That's a, that's a direction. That's a heart that is just given over to God. In all of our frailty, in all of our pride, in all of our sin and failure, a heart that keeps coming back because, God, you deserve the glory for my life. And matter of fact, the more that I realize and the more it is evident to me that you deserve the glory, the humbler I become because I realize how little glory I'm actually able to give you because this is glory, your strength, your might, your brightness, your wonder, your grandeur, your majesty. This is who you are. How can I actually give you any of that? How can I draw attention to that? But yet God wants me to do that. God desires me to bring him glory. Why? That, that is such a humbling thing. God has so much greater purposes in mind for my life than anything I can, any goal I can ever uh, chase, any, any uh, dream of success or accomplishment that I could ever step into and start walking down that path. They pale in the light of bringing God glory. So here's the question, do we feel like that? Do we really think that to be true? Or do we read these verses, like it's so easy to do, and it just kind of becomes church talk, not themes of our life? Well, how was Lazarus' sickness and eventual death? How was that for God's glory? Well, we see three points this morning. I'm going to share them with you, and then we'll apply them in the same way. The death of Lazarus showed everyone who Jesus actually was. That's important. That's important. Let's walk through this passage. This will be a little bit of a verse by verse here, but we're going to do it quickly. We read this, but let's draw back into it. Verse number one, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Well, that's an interesting word there. That word lovest actually is the Greek word phileo. If you know anything about the word, there's several different words for love uh, in, in Greek. 
And they all fall under one word, love, in our English language. This one is phileo. It's, it's a brotherly love, a, f- a family-type love. They send a message to Jesus that our brother, your friend, who you love as a family member, he's sick. It goes on, verse number four. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. That was his response to the people that are there. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And by the way, when the disciples heard that, they were probably glad for that statement, not even realizing even what it meant. This means we don't have to go there. It's not unto death. Not a big deal. I'm not in a rush to get down there um, because this isn't, this isn't unto death. The, the end result of this is not going to be death. He's not going to die. That's what the human mind would think at that point. But that the Son of God might be glorified. Son of God glorified, what does that mean? Okay, move on. You know, verse number five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he didn't share this with the disciples at that point. He shares it with us. This word love is a different word for love. This is not the family love. Now this is agapao. This is God's love. This is divine love. Love that has zero shred of self involved whatsoever. It's only a love that actually God could ever achieve. But it is our example. And it is expressing the love here that Jesus had for Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So just in case you're wondering if he didn't care, that's why he wasn't going to go. He shares it with us. No, no, that, that's not what it is. I have perfect love for this family. He goes on in verse 6. When he, Jesus, had heard, therefore, that he, Lazarus, was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Well, okay, so John is telling the story after it already happened. Jesus stayed two days before he did anything. Two days. He hears that Lazarus is sick. He, go ahead and, he goes ahead and downplays the urgency of the situation to his disciples. This sickness is not a death. He's, he's not, this, that's not the end goal here. Death. If I was listening to that, I would say, oh, good, he's not going to die. I mean, I trust Jesus. Lazarus isn't going to die. That wasn't what he was saying. And when he heard that he was sick, he stayed there. Stayed there for two more days. Two days have gone by now. Verse number seven. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. That was not what they wanted to hear. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. And doesn't our Lord just love to throw out those parables and proverbs that we all try to understand what exactly he's saying there? (laughs) When he tells the disciples that, um, by the way, now we're leaving, they, of course, had some issue with that. You know, one of the minor things called dying. You know, we'd rather not die. Um, They're trying to kill us and almost killed us last time we're there. Let's let's not do this again. I mean, are, are you just, this is a suicide mission. And they're trying to talk Jesus out of this. Jesus responds with this Hebrew proverb. I've never had a Hebrew person explain to me what this means, okay? And neither have you. But we can get a general idea that this proverb, Jesus is saying, listen, there's 12 hours in the day. 
When the 12 hours are done, guess what's coming? Night. There's, there's stuff that needs to be done here in the daytime. We need to get it done before the night comes. Remember Jesus in another passage said, the night cometh when no man can work. So this was a picture for God's plan and God's purpose for Jesus here on this earth. Listen, there's only 12 hours in the day. We've got to get this done. We're, we're not going to be able to stay out of Jerusalem. We're headed here. This circumstance, this sickness, this tragedy in the life of a person that I love is going to be part of that purpose. It's going to be part of that plan. He continues, verse number 11. These things said he, Jesus, after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then his disciples said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. <laughs> They're just not getting it. So we know in the scriptures more than once Jesus uses this idea of sleep to be talking about people that were passed away, that were dead. Okay, this was a common thing, I believe, in their culture. It seems like, because it's, it's there often. But for some reason, they didn't take it that way. Maybe the fact that Jesus said this, this, sin, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, maybe that was what they're still kind of dwelling on. Maybe, maybe the fact, uh, I don't know, they're just not thinking along those lines, and they say, oh, he's sleeping, that's good. If he gets some rest, he'll get better. We don't need to go. I mean, he's going to be fine. Verse 12, then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Talking about two different things. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's dead. The disciples think, it gives us an idea on their thought there, they think that he was talking literally about taking rest. He was resting from his sickness and he would get better. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I mean, you can almost imagine Jesus, read my lips, Lazarus is dead. And he told them the truth. I don't know what was going through their mind when he said that to them, but he felt the need to make it plain. And you and I are reading through this conversation, but this was very fresh in their minds. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus' resurrection, which was, by the way, preceded by his death. I mean, we love to talk about the resurrection. Amen. Risen from the grave after four days. Hallelujah. Praise God. He did a wonderful miracle. But before that, before to get to the resurrection, he had to die. Before he died, he had to be sick. And he didn't just have a cold. I mean, the guy was sick enough to die from it without ibuprofen, <laughs> without Vicodin or all those modern painkillers that we have. I mean, he went through a rough patch. His family went through a rough patch. There were at this time when Jesus, fast forward a little bit, when Jesus actually gets there, there are already professional mourners. The family is in turmoil. Not everyone, but there's a lot of it. All of that had to be walked through to get to this joyful resurrection that you and I draw inspiration from. To get through to this joyful time that God says, this is going to be for my glory. You know, the, the self-driven humanity that we battle with so often might be tempted to say, well, thanks a lot. I mean, I'm going to have to go through this so that you can get glory? I mean, that hardly seems fair. Is that, is that not sometimes how we can be tempted to feel? 
You say, well, I've never felt like that. And some of us may say something like that that have never actually gone through anything like that. But when you actually have to be in the press, when you actually have to experience the pain for days, months, when you have to submit to the sickness that seems like it will never go away, when you have to bear the burden of a family member that seems like they just will not step out of the despair they're in, in our humanity, it can hardly seem fair. But that's one of the reasons God gives us his word, that we can draw hope and strength, and we can see clearly through these times when our emotions cloud everything. And that's really all we can see is what we feel. God gives us his word. He's so good to do that. All of these negative things that were brought on by this sickness and this death, anxiety, mourning, even doubt in Jesus. His disciples doubted. Martha doubted. They weren't the only ones. But every aspect of this was necessary for God to get glory. It's the glory of God to do things that no one else can do. It's God's glory to do things that no one else can do. It's God's glory to lift people out of despair who will allow themselves to be lifted. It's God's glory to work in a situation that seems impossible. You say, we would all say, yes, yes, that is true. He's the God of the impossible. But when we sit down and realize that we have to experience the impossible before it happens, they say, whoa, no, I didn't sign up for that. I like talking about it. I like seeing the miracle. But we fail to understand all that they had to go through to get to the miracle. To get to the point where Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh, could show everybody who he actually was. So well, can't we just kind of fast forward through that and get to the good parts like you would in a movie? And that's not the way it works. The resurrection of this man gave Jesus the opportunity to show everybody who he was. And our difficulty, our circumstance, whatever you want to call it, our hurt, our stumbling gives God the opportunity to show everybody who he is. And according to the scriptures, God takes those opportunities. God takes his opportunities to give himself glory. God takes these opportunities to do something wonderful if we'll allow him, if, as we read in a few verses here, if we'll only believe. The death of Lazarus showed everyone who Jesus actually was. Could God have done it a different way? Of course, but he didn't. This is our God. Number two, the death of Lazarus strengthened the faith of the disciples. You know, this is important. This, this Christian life, um, you know, dead religion throughout the world, many times I've noticed this, has at its pinnacle, all of them do, worship. I mean, they're worshiping something or someone. All of them are. They're, they're all, if you don't have anything to worship, it's not really a religion, right? But our God is so personal and so loving and intentional as he desires for us to believe in him. He doesn't just desire for us to believe in him because he's just, um, I, I hate to even mention this, but because he, he's this narcissistic, narcissistic God, just thinks of himself, everybody's got to think well of me so I can, no, no, no. Because that's the only way we're going to succeed. It's the only way we're going to experience the blessings and the riches that are in Jesus Christ is by believing. A life of doubt is nobody's friend. 
Zero. Death of Lazarus strengthened the faith of the disciples. Would you join me in verse number 15? So Jesus just got done saying that Lazarus is dead. So he hasn't even actually traveled yet. He's telling them aforetime what's going to happen. Lazarus is dead. Verse 15. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Lazarus is dead, and by the way, I'm glad I wasn't there when he died. For your sakes. Our Lord is always thinking about you and me. You know, I know we can't point to a verse for that song, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. But here's what we can point to. We can point to his goodness. That he knew before the foundations of the world the stupidity that was in Sean Jacobs, the sin that I would succumb to and thereby damn my soul to hell. He sent his son. He prophesied it to Adam and Eve way before I came along. That's the goodness of God. That's how we can say amen when verse 15 he says, I'm glad that Lazarus has died. I'm glad that I wasn't there uh, to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, they're still thinking, uh, suicide mission. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus or twin, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's like, all right, here we go. Join me. We're going to give our lives here. Then when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Jesus arrives in Bethany. Lazarus has been dead now for four days. Then the miracles happen. But what was the point in all of this? Well, one of them was so God's glory could be shown. But what's the point in God's glory to be shown? How does that relate to you and I? Well, for us to experience and to realize the, the true glory of God, that builds faith in us. It draws us closer to Him. It roots us more and more in Him. Hebrews chapter 11 says uh, about faith, how important it is. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the substance, the material, something you can hang on to, of things that you're hoping for, which things that you're hoping for you don't have it, that's why you're hoping for it. It hasn't happened yet. Faith is that substance, gives you something to hang on to. It's as if it had already happened because you have faith. You get the same strength from actually experiencing it. And it hasn't even experienced. You haven't, you haven't gone through that yet, but you have faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's so many things in our life we have never seen. For example, God was faith. Faith becomes and grabs hold of things we have not seen. It gives us that God confidence. Faith. He says, by the way, I'm glad we weren't there when he died because this is going to help you believe. This is going to help you have faith in me. I mean, I don't know why he did that, but I know he was the most selfless person I've ever experienced in my entire life. He was thinking of his men, thinking of the future leaders of the church that we're experiencing this morning. But to get to that place to where uh, faith in God was being strengthened, 
They had to walk through difficult times so they could see with their own eyes what Jesus could do. They had to experience darkness and despair and tragedy as, as they come in fear of death of even arriving at near Jerusalem because of what they'd just been through with Jesus, but then experiencing now what the family is going through as they arrive onto that scene. They had to walk through all of that to really appreciate what Jesus did, what he was going to do at this point in the story. They had to talk out their own lack of faith in Jesus. They're talking, we get a little bit of the conversation right here in the passage as they're talking about, they're not even, they're not even thinking on the same lines of Jesus. They had to talk all that out to really appreciate when they got there and to see it actually happen. All of those things that Jesus led them through came for his glory. For his glory. They pointed to who Jesus was. And when, when, we, when we, when circumstances, when tragedy, when very difficult things are allowed to point to who God is in his children, that builds faith. It builds faith. Faith builds strength, gives us hope, gives us experience, as the book of Romans tells us. So that next time when it happens again, oh, I, yeah, I've been down that path. This is, this is tough, but I, I know where God's going with this, or I'm clinging to his goodness. All for God's glory. You know, this song that I appreciate, the chorus goes like this. My story, your glory. My pain, your purpose. My mess, your message. In all things, I know you're working. One life, one mission, one reason why I'm living. All for you, not for me. My story, your glory. God desires for our, our faith to be rooted in Him. It is the only worthwhile faith. But we continue. Would you continue with me in verse number 38? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. They just arrived. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha, the sister of him that was dead. And she saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? Didn't I say if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God? So many times that is the single issue in our lives. We just don't believe what he says. We hear about it all day Sunday. We even crack our devotionals, or the word of God sometimes during the week, hear it on the radio. But when it comes right down to it, you and I just don't believe what he says. If thou wouldest believe, didn't I tell you? You would see the glory of God. You would see something so incredible that you would be willing to tell it on the mountaintop. You would be willing to shout it out to everybody. And I would be glorified. Oh, the things that God would do if we would just believe his words. Thirdly and lastly, the sickness, death of Lazarus led to Jesus led Jesus to his greatest tragedy and greatest glory. I studied this passage. We're going to fast forward a little bit to get to this. But God used this tragedy and the resulting miracle to bring about something both horrible and wonderful. His own death on the cross. 
This was the hinge that brought it. Let's start in verse number 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, that's after he raised Lazarus from the dead, and believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. They started getting worried. There were people that went to the Pharisees after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and people were starting to believe in him by the numbers. They go to him and the Pharisees get a little scared, get a little angry. They say here in this passage that they were scared that the Romans would come and squelch this movement of Jesus' followers. That, you know, out of fear, the Roman government would want to crush this rebellion before it ever became anything. And then they're going to take away our positions as, as rulers. We've been allowed to rule at this time. We've been kind of allowed to govern our people. They're going to take that, and then they're going to take our nation. They were scared of what Jesus showing who he actually was would result in. Why? Well, these men, total lack of faith. They didn't believe in Jesus, who he was. That would have fixed everything. But we go on in verse 49, and one of them named Caiaphas, and we know that name, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, ye know nothing at all, nor consider what is expedient or helpful for us, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, he foretold that Jesus should die for that nation. Here was the first human being to speak about what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Jesus had already spoken about it several times to his men. Here's the first person from the other side to come along and say, this guy's getting too popular. This, this is helpful. We can use this guy to save our nation. Not knowing that by doing that, he was fulfilling the very plan and purpose of God. By doing this, he was setting wheels in motion that would result in the salvation that would be offered not just to the Jew, but to the Gentiles. We'll study Wednesday night. By doing this, by walking this family, uh, walking after this family had gone through tragedy and sickness and mourning and, and then to observe a wonderful, wonderful resurrection in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. To take that wonderful thing and to turn it around and to crucify somebody for political reasons, he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. You say, well, I would have never worked that out. I mean, that's all of that tragedy and we haven't even walked through the next couple months up to the cross yet all of that that people had to go through to get to this point and this is exactly where God gets the glory we have to walk through all of that to give him the glory we have to walk through all of that to have our faith strengthened our humanity says no our humanity resists our humanity likes comfort. Our humanity likes to avoid painful things and unpleasant things. But God says, I have to take you through that to get the glory. I have to take you through that so that your strength and your faith is actually rooted in me where it needs to be. We have to do that. 
And he proved that on the circumstances that went to and led him to the cross here where the glory of God was revealed. He told him this was going to happen. In John chapter 12, verse 23, the, the next chapter, Jesus answering them said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I mean, that, that's how you're going to be glorified? By a torturous death? By, by putting yourself as like a, a human carpet for everybody to walk all over you? To beat you? To ridicule you? To really make your, your disciples really embarrassed that they followed you all these years? And now you're just the, 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 the epitome of ridicule and shame to everyone. You're going to be lifted up on a cross and made fun of and mocked and beaten and subject to all of that. You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be the, be the one that's going to conquer everybody. Even the Romans thought that. Caiaphas is here. Yeah, we better do something about this. Let's make him a martyr. That'll calm everybody down. But the glory of God in this single act of the cross to this day, an act of extravagant, sacrificial, and undeserved love for mankind. It's never, nothing like it has ever been revealed. Nothing like it. That's our God. That's his glory. And because of that, he deserves to be glorified. He deserves that. And he was on the cross. God glorified him. And it's our job to continue that. The glory of God. Would you bow your heads and just consider these things this morning? Christian, what about your life? Is your life showing others how real Jesus is? You know, it's, it's no mystery, those of us who have been down life's road any length of time, that there is going to be difficulty and challenges. It's, it's going to happen. There's going to be tragedy. That's when it is really revealed what's inside of us. When we're squeezed, when we're stretched, when we're out on that plank, and nothing's holding us up, it seems. Is your life showing others how real he is? Is the way you handle these situations, the, the way uh, your testimony has continued to shine for Jesus Christ through all of this? Are you showcasing the power of Jesus? Are you accepting the difficult things that God is allowing to happen in your life? Submitting to them. Allowing them to have their perfect and complete work so that you could be perfect and entire, as James said, wanting nothing. Do you understand the ultimate sacrifice that our Lord made to save my soul and yours? And am I willing to do the same for Him? Maybe you would say this morning, Pastor Shauna, I'm, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I am a follower of Jesus. But I'd like you to pray for me. Would there be anybody like that in this auditorium? Just slip your hand up and slip it down. I'm not sure that I've been saved. Would you pray for me? Nobody's looking around. I'd just like to pray for you this morning. Father, you did a wonderful thing and, and we rejoice over this story. We gain inspiration and we get a view of you, that, of your power, your majesty, your might, your greatness. There's nothing impossible for God. So many applications we gain from this wonderful, 
miracle that you performed and recorded for us. But Lord, let us not forget what led to that. Let us not forget what those disciples had to walk through, what that family had to walk through, what Lazarus had to walk through. Lord, all with one single focus in mind, your glory, your eventual crucifixion, the drawing and redemption of all mankind. And Lord, who in that scenario would have ever thought that that's what they were a part of? Lord, it would be so easy in our circumstance to view our circumstance as it only affects us. It's our hardship. It's, it's our difficulty. How could this really be part of a bigger plan? God, you show us over and over again your goodness. God, would you root our faith in you this morning? Bring strength, bring God confidence to this congregation. We will praise you for it. In your name I ask. Amen. I invite you to.